0: Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started.
1: Be warned. This is not a story for the faint of heart. This is a true story, one that is both chilling and haunting, drawn from first-hand accounts of those who experienced the horror and survived the terror. This is a story about a house. A house with a tragic history, a house of death, and it is said that it is haunted by an evil seldom experienced anywhere else on Earth. Cayuga, Indiana has a sleepy rural vibe by all accounts, but just on the outskirts of town, a darkness lurks. Driving down North Elm Tree Road, cool breezes drift from the Vermilion River across the green lawns and pastures, rustling the leaves of the old growth trees. Follow the bend of the road to the crossroads and you will find yourself at Willow's Weep. It is here that our story begins. Built in 1890, Willow's Weep sits unassumingly visible as you approach from the road. Named after the decades-old wizened willow tree that stands sentinel on the lawn, the house's name now tells of the deep pain and suffering experienced by so many within its walls. The face that Willowsweep offers to the passerby is plain, modest, yet it hides a disturbing feature. Behind the curbside facade, the house stretches out menacingly in the shape of an upside-down cross. The house was built at the end of the 18th century by John Henry Sykes, a superstitious and strange man upon land that lies at a crossroads and a confluence of two rivers. This land lies blood-soaked from ancient battles and is the resting place of age-old Indigenous burials. Perhaps it was the land that inspired Mr. Sykes to build the house, and perhaps it was the land that inspired him to execute its bizarre design. Like the windows installed in the exterior corners where the walls meet, or even more disturbingly, the pentagram-shaped room at the center of the home, a star-shaped heart from which other rooms can be entered and exited, and many have made their exit. This house has borne witness to terrible tragedy. Here, the violent deaths of seven people have transpired. Three of these were tortured souls who were driven to take their own lives. There is something primeval, something wicked, that inhabits Willow's Weep. The very air is heavy and oppressive, dark. All who have dared visit feel a negative energy which some have described simply as hate. There have been the unfortunate who have lived there, falling prey to this dark energy since its earliest days. There have been reports of incest, self-inflicted gunshot wounds, overdoses, even one man who was devoured by his hogs. One woman felt suffocated within the walls of Willowsweep during her time living there. She was originally drawn to the house because of the unusually set windows and eagerly began renovations. When the work began, however, the house made its displeasure known. Ceiling boards were ripped and thrown. Two-by-fours were viciously hurled by an unseen force. She herself was scratched by an entity that pulled her down and grabbed at her hair. The doors slammed repeatedly and with great force, tools randomly slid across the floor. The activity was relentless. She was depressed, found it difficult to breathe. When she sought the company of her family, however, the house would have none of it. One of her cousins was choked and thrown against the wall. She claimed that her relatives attempted suicide just after spending a night in the house. Other owners had similar experiences. Chairs moving on their own, dishes broken and strewn about, disarray and destruction were common. People who have been trimming the looming weeping willow have fallen from its branches, breaking their backs. Some believe that this dark history is owing to a macabre discovery made by a handyman who uncovered the arm bone of a small child in a crawl space under the central room. An abandoned granite fire pit lay close by. Or perhaps it was the mysterious and aged book of the occult found beneath the floor that invited evil within the walls of Willow's Weep. Perhaps the why will never be known, but the paranormal investigators who have sought answers have had some clues as to who. Communication with the spirits of Willow's Weep has sent chills down the spine of all who have heard it. The voices are angry and many. Some have spat out words like splattered or devoured. Are they referring to the grisly death by hogs or death by suicide? One spirit identified itself as Baphomet. Baphomet is known as a winged humanoid deity with the head and feet of a goat, adorned with mystical symbols. And of course, the word Satan. It's been captured, not just once. Perhaps it was this evil spirit who emblazoned a scorched shape of a horned animal on the wall of one bedroom where a cross had just been hanging. The cross itself was then found destroyed nearby. There is also a bloodstained chair standing stubbornly, rumored to be soaked with the blood of the desperate man who, having lost his wife to an overdose, shot himself. Shadow figures, movement behind the curtains of empty rooms, flashing lights and the telltale thumps, knocks and scrapes of an unhappy haunting have been reported by countless visitors to Willow's Weep. The footprints of a small child were once captured in a thin sheen of baby powder, crossing the room and moving into a wall. (laughs) Paranormal investigators have entered this property seeking answers, seeking truth. Some have reported gusts of energy that have aggressively moved against them, physically moving their bodies and some have had the even more frightening sensation of being stabbed in the back. Among them, it is widely agreed that evil was invited to Willow's Weep to take root in the land. Were evil spirits summoned, never to be banished back again to their hell? It is a dark place with a dark history. The only thing that is truly known about Willow's Weep is that something intangible, something terrible lurks within. Something that can kill.
0: Great! Thanks, Harris. Just just what I needed to help me sleep tonight. There you go. It's pretty disturbing, eh? Uh, That's putting it mildly. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating.
1: There are so many mini documentaries and rough footage online that recount experiences at Willow's Weep. It was also featured on a Haunted Houses episode in season one of William Shatner's Unexplained. The current owner and a paranormal investigator himself, Dave
0: Spinks, has even written a book about the property too. Well, we are fascinated with stories of places like these, even as gruesome and tragic as some of the history is. Mm -hmm. It's the unknown that draws us in. Yeah, that house needs to be exorcised, Walker. I have
1: to say, I will not be visiting, and I'm pretty down with all things paranormal,
0: but black magic? No way. Well, funny you should say that, Harris. Apparently, people are requesting exorcisms now more than ever before. Really? Why? Well, Father Gian Matteo Roggio was quoted in The Telegraph as saying, We have seen an increase in the requests for exorcisms because the pandemic has made people more vulnerable to the idea that Satan or some evil entity has taken over their lives. Wow. Mm -hmm. He said that people have fallen into poverty. They found themselves suffering from anxiety and depression. They feel that their lives are no longer in their own hands, but in the hands of a malign force. It's a big crisis. Wow. Well, we do cast around for external reasons for our unhappiness and misfortune, don't we? We do. And Dr. Christine Simmons-Moore, a psychology professor at the University of West Georgia, said that anxiety and depression are running high as a result of the pandemic. She says the whole sense of a lack of control in people's lives is impacting them a lot. And if you can just feel a little better after you have a little exorcism, why not go for it? (laughs) Well, Bishop Brian Oulette, who is a priest and a psychologist, said in a 2021 interview for Dateline that he had had 500 requests for exorcisms. Wow. Yeah. He did say though that typically 70 to 85% of people have a mental health condition, which requires pastoral care or traditional therapy. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mental health issues aren't usually accompanied by the telltale signs of demonic possession, of course, which are spontaneous fires, levitation, or the smell of foul odors. Yeah, that would be a dead giveaway, Walker. (laughs) I would think so. Dr. Richard Gallagher is a professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College and Columbia University who often collaborates with the Catholic diocese to determine which cases involve mental health and which may have a supernatural connection. Now, he thinks that this increase in exorcism requests may be related to the fact that young people, in giving up a mainstream religion, often substitute it with something else, (sighs) often involving ideas of energy forces, occult themes, or visitations by spirits. He also says that young people nowadays are brought up on movies and TV shows and Paranormal Beliefs. Yeah, like The X-Files. Do you remember that show, Walker? I do. I actually used to be too scared to watch it. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, the music freaked me
1: out. Oh, my God. Oh, I remember the music so well. I thought they were the coolest, Scully and Mulder. I totally wanted very their Very popular jobs. show. Very, very popular. There are a lot of believers out there, aren't there? Apparently, 40 to 50% of Americans believe in demonic possession.
0: Wow. Yeah, I would be really curious to know how many exorcisms actually are performed in North America. Yeah, that's a good question. And how true
1: are those rituals to the movie, The Exorcist? right. You know, that's a true story, right? Seriously? Yeah. Isn't that scary to think about? But you know me, Walker, I'm a total believer. I've never encountered someone possessed to my knowledge, but I have stayed in my fair share of haunted houses. I've lived in one too. I don't think it is at all surprising that places can retain the energy of past events or the shadows of lives that have been lived there. Perhaps some spirits have unresolved business, but there are those spirits or entities that are just there to wreak havoc and cause trouble, like the spirits documented in The Conjuring. Uh. This film was based on another haunted house, a real haunted house in Burlville, Rhode Island. The spirits within this house have been described as violent. No thanks. Yeah, no thanks. Not what you want for roommates. This house actually has quite a history. It was built in 1736, and apparently the paranormal activity started soon after that. Back then, it was thought it was the spirits of the original caretakers of the land, the indigenous people, who were haunting the home. In the 1970s, the Perrin family lived in the house with their five daughters. They had lived there 10 years, and during that time, they experienced seeing and hearing spirits who smelled of rotting flesh. They levitated their beds, and even some members of the family were physically hurt by the spirits. Some claim it was Bathsheba Sherman, a Satanist who lived in the home in the 1800s, who sacrificed her own child to the devil. And they believe she is at the root of the haunting. Others, though, think that King Philip's War of 1675 to 1678 introduced the violence and trauma to the land. And this was a battle
0: between indigenous people and white settlers. Okay, hard to say, but Harris, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this episode. Oh, I know. I'm sorry, <laughs> Walker. I'm here for you. <laughs>
1: There is a long string of tragedy and horror at this house too, just like Willow's Weep. And really unusually so. There were suicides, rapes, murders, poisonings, the list goes on and on. While the parent family were there, things became pretty unsettling when one of their daughters became possessed. And yes, there was an exorcism performed by the very famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, and they actually ended up consulting on the film itself. Really? Wow. Yep. Today, the house is known as the Arnold Estate, and though they fled in 1980, one of the Perrin daughters daughters was quoted as saying that if she had the money, she would purchase the property to protect it. Why on earth? God only knows. (laughs) She said she wouldn't live there, so that's a good thing, I suppose, but it was her dream to have the farm again.
0: So, who lives there today?
1: I think it's now open for haunted house experiences or tours. There's a TikTok video made by owner Madison Heinsen who describes what it's like working there. She actually greets the house before guests start arriving each morning.
0: Yeah, I would also try to get on the spirit's good side if I had to be there every day. No kidding. So, the current owner is capitalizing on the paranormal activity there, but most often people buy homes without any ...inkling of any kind of spooky goings-on. Yeah, and that's what happened to the couple who bought the house
1: that The Exorcist was based on. No way. Yeah. In an interview for As It Happens, Ben Rocky Harris and Danielle Witt said, We discovered that in the 1940s, a teenage boy who lived here became supposedly possessed by a demon, and an exorcism was performed. That boy was 14-year-old Robbie Mannheim, who claimed to be possessed. In addition to Robbie's possession, the family also experienced paranormal activity such as cold temperatures and moving objects. The family did move, and Robbie is said to have undergone exorcisms.
0: Plural. Plural. Were the house owners upset? I know I would
1: be. Well, they described being a lot shocked, but that in the end, they realized it
0: was still a great house. I think I would have to move.
1: Ah, uh, Yeah, me too. Interestingly enough, though, I did read in the CBC article that psychiatrists and others believe that Robbie Mannheim may have had undiagnosed mental health issues, which were mistaken for demonic possession.
0: Okay, but that doesn't explain the moving objects, temperature changes and all that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly.
1: I think we tend to disregard or explain away the unusual. We're hardwired to make sense of our environment. So we just shove that misshapen puzzle piece in and and we pretend that
0: it fits. Yeah, like I'm pretty sure I left my earrings on the table, but somehow they ended up on top of the grandfather clock under a bowler (laughs) 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 hat. That kind Kind of of makes you think (laughs)
1: That was a pretty specific (laughs) example, Walker. I think you might have a story there. But sometimes
0: occurrences are really obvious, like lights or taps turning on and off. Yeah, we can easily explain that away as an electricity shortage or bad plumbing. And of course, all manner of bumps in the night can be assigned to some kind of real world explanation. Mm -hmm, True. So how do you know you're experiencing a haunting or... Faulty wiring. Well, apparently hauntings are more common in densely populated areas like big cities, which I didn't know. Mm. According to Kathy Toll, an expert on spirits and home blessings and cleansings, this is because there's so many energies milling about mixing. Okay, I get it. And as reported by Rachel Silva and Kelsey Kloss in the article, 10 Signs Your House is Definitely Haunted, Ms. Toll is quoted as saying, As I experience it, Spirits are rarely scary. They just need help with something or want to tell you their story. She goes on to say that a loved one may want to just visit you, guide you, inform you, or protect you. A spirit might have died in that spot and needs assistance crossing over. Or a more mischievous spirit needs to be dispatched outside. Yeah, those mischievous spirits, they can go
1: outside, Walker. (laughs) I'm just saying. So... How do we know it's just not our imagination working over time?
0: Well, keep an eye out for the following signs there, Harris. Okay. Notice if you're feeling watched when you are by yourself. Are items disappearing and reappearing in different places, like in my example? Are you noticing smells which seem out of context, like cigar or perfume? And if you smell death and decay, that's a big loud warning sign. I would think so, Walker. That would be (laughs) be pretty obvious. (laughs) Noticeable changes in temperature like cold spots is a good indicator. And definitely unexplained whispers or someone calling your name or touching you would be super creepy and clear signs that you have haunting on your hands. Yeah, super creepy. I actually have an experience with that last one, Walker. Really? Yeah. We were staying
1: in a very old row house in Shrewsbury, England, and it was a really sad occasion. We had lost someone who was very beloved to us. Anyway, my daughter chose her bedroom, which was tucked away at the front of the house. Okay. And it, had, it was cute. It had a little wee old Victorian fireplace, but at the end of her bed, there was this deep, dark cupboard. And she wasn't even in there one night before she came to tell us that she had heard a very clear voice saying her name no. from inside the cupboard. No. Yeah. Freaky. <laughs> it terrified her and it Ugh. terrified us. Then a few days later, as we were getting ready for the funeral, I heard her name when I was rummaging about in my suitcases, and it was clear as a bell
0: in my right ear. Oh, my gosh. So you've heard a spirit. But have you seen one? Mm. A good number of people actually do claim to have seen a ghost. Dr. Jeff Ellis estimated that a whopping 39% of people have seen a spirit, but that 67% of people claim to know someone who has seen a ghost. Mm. I personally have not seen a ghost, but I have had an odd experience or two. One time late at night, I was having a conversation about a loved one who had passed. Within minutes, I heard a large bang and ran upstairs where I found a painting of of that same person had fallen to the ground. Wow. The nail came out, everything was out of the wall and on the floor. Wow, that Mm -hmm. is so crazy. Maybe they were giving you a sign to let you know
1: that they're nearby and that they could hear you and were thinking about you.
0: Perhaps. Apparently almost 50% of North Americans believe in ghosts, and since the late 1970s, this number has increased 400%. Wow. I wonder why that is. I know. I was a bit surprised by this number as well that it was Mm. so high. I came across an interesting survey, though, conducted by Vivint, a home security company, and Vivint surveyed 1,000 homeowners about their paranormal experiences. So what were the findings? Well, listen to this. 49% of homeowners felt their home was haunted. Get out of here. Yeah, and of those people, 57% lived in an urban setting. Mm -hmm. 44% of these people who felt their home was haunted had heard from neighbors about odd experiences in or near their home, and 40% of haunted homeowners said that a crime crime, death, or tragedy occurred in their residence at some point in the past. And as for the activity... 30% 30% said that they heard disembodied voices. 30% said that objects move on their own, but only 28% had actually seen a ghost. Wow, that's kind of remarkable. Mm-hmm. I know, right? Almost half of the haunted had successfully removed their ghosts, but 43% were not successful. A funny survey you might think for a home security firm to conduct but many of their clients purchase the security cameras to get to the bottom of the activity. Wow, that makes sense. hmm Many mistaken paranormal experiences, though, have been found to have actually been caused by pets. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so what do we do if we feel our house is haunted? Other than installing a security camera, how do we get them to move along? Well, I would think the first step would be to determine
1: whether you're actually dealing with the haunting or something that could be explained. I think I would hire a paranormal investigator who could perhaps recommend a solution or discover an explanation. But let's ask the expert. We are excited to introduce James Gilbert, founding member and head of the New Zealand Strange Occurrences Society, a paranormal investigation and research group based in Wellington, New Zealand. The Strange Occurrences Society offers paranormal investigations, analysis of photographs, and they serve as consultants to media and film production companies on all things paranormal related. James has co authored the book Spooked Exploring the Paranormal in New Zealand and also works as a professional photographer. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, James.
2: Thank you. Um, It's a privilege to be involved. I'm happy to be here.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to chat with you because as you may not know, I am a lover of all things paranormal myself. So I cannot wait to to get into this with you. So you are a founding member, as I mentioned, of the New Zealand Strange Occurrences Society. What first sparked your interest in the paranormal? Oh, when
2: I was a young teen, all of that stuff was in the movies. There was a Bigfoot movie, Eric von Daniken, um, UFOs, ET, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, all yes. of that stuff was around. Like I just hit 60s. So I was a child in the 70s, you know, and teenager in the 70s. And I, I, I was exposed to all of this stuff um, growing up. It's very popular. Um, there were TV psychics, Creskin. Um, the guy who bent the spoons and forks. Um,
1: yeah, Chris, the amazing Chriskin.
2: Yeah, and who's, who was the fork bending guy? Um, you know.
1: Oh, I, uh, I know who Israel, you're talking about.
2: Is, is Israeli man. He was fascinating. He was on TV all of the time. So that was around, you know, much like it is today, except it was on broadcast television, and we only had one channel back then, so
3: <laughs> you right. watched
2: it. I had various strange ex- experiences growing up, none of which I want to talk about, but... What really kicked this thing along was uh, my wife now, we weren't married at the time, but I'm going to say it was about 1998 New Year. It was around, it was just late last century. And we were in a small city in New Zealand called Whanganui, and we'd just driven down from the central North Island, and we stayed in a hotel there. And we had a very disturbing experience in the middle of the night, which... A few things may have led up to it, but we woke up, we both woke up bolt upright at 1am and it felt like something was coming at us from the end of the bed. And this is both of us, right? Not one of us, but simultaneously something came at us from the end of the bed. And I'm not sure about this, but I recall a sensation of pushing it away. And, you know, Denise thought it was a big black dog and I thought it was a man and you know of course the first thing you think of is someone has broken into the room
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know we looked around we checked around nobody you know we were we were actually terrified um shaking you know Denise was crying everyone's here standing on end it was really really disconcerting and we had to leave so in those days we had checkbooks. So I wrote out a check for the, for the overnight stay and just left it on the coffee table in the room and said, I'm sorry, we had to depart nearly hours. So we left it. I'm going to say this happened at 1am and by about 2.30 or 3am we we'd left. Uh, we were gone. We could not. Uh, we tried to get back to bed, but it was futile.
1: You were too shaken.
2: We were too shaken and we didn't stop shaking until we got back to Wellington, which was about two and a half hours drive um you know 100 odd miles Mm -hmm. so and, and then the the dawn was coming up and we got back to denise's apartment and you know the birds were singing and the dawn was just rising and we that was the first time we actually calmed down so that was pretty scary now i'm not saying it was paranormal there could have been some psychological aspect to it i don't know and you know i'm personally i'm not religious i'm not a church person didn't have anyone to go to i mean had i have had somebody who was a spiritual guide or leader of some kind to go to i would have gone to them but there wasn't anybody to talk to and that sort of sat in the background for a few years and in i think i'm going to say 2005 we decided to start this group, strange occurrences, paranormal investigation, as we called it at that time. <laughs> we changed it to the New Zealand Strange Occurrences Society when we all got a bit middle aged and started to, you know, not really want to stay up late at night quite so much. Um, <laughs> so we thought, I'm with a, you
1: on that, James. <laughs> a society
2: sounds a bit more kind of official and and you know authoritative mm-hmm. and inclusive. That, that incident was, was scary, right? It, we were terrified and we didn't know who to talk to. And then I started seeing these TV shows, the Taps one with the guys who were plumbers but became full-time paranormal investigators. And there was a British one with a blonde woman who used to run away screaming.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember that one.
2: Yeah. I think like the sound guy or the cameraman would pick up something and just throw it behind them or something. What was that? And she'd and run screaming. And like after 9,000 episodes, she's still running away screaming, um, even if nothing bad happened in the last you know, 8,000. But I watched those shows. I thought, we can do this. Mm-hmm. This is good. We can, we can actually do this. This is kind of an answer. And Denise is like, oh, God, <laughs> here we go. So I wrote to two other friends, and we got, we got started. And we had these kind of clandestine, secret meetings in different locations where we didn't really do anything about puff and drink tea and eat biscuits. Then there was Halloween, and the newspaper did this big spread on us, and that kind of kicked things off. That would have been 2006 or 7. And that once we were like in the newspaper, there was no other active paranormal investigation teams in New Zealand at that time. Right. So we were like the only one that people knew about. And we had a web page and people started contacting us.
1: Yeah. And you were then the people that you didn't have when you had a strange occurrence yes. to yeah. reach out to.
2: Exactly. Um, and a lot of it is actually just having someone who will listen to you, take you seriously, not laugh at you, not ridicule you, but actually just be open minded and listen. Mm-hmm. And you know, the same goes for emails, you know, just be responsive and take care, you know. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to be that person, but we're not resourced or funded or anything.
1: Exactly. Right. You do this out of the, the goodness of your heart based on this this terrifying experience that you had personally. Yeah. Well it's not it's not
2: that much the goodness of the heart because it's more out of personal curiosity. You do question yourself continuously about this stuff. And yeah. these opportunities to speak and discuss are really interesting. I, I love them.
1: Yeah, because we can, you know, sort of bounce each other's ideas off each other, take in each other's perspectives. And there are all kinds of perspectives out there. So I'm sure you mm-hmm. run into situations where you might be speaking to someone who really is convinced that they are experiencing paranormal activity, but maybe someone else in their household is a skeptic. And I'm not sure where you are on that spectrum from skeptic to believer, but how do you think the science of what you do, if at all, can can convince a skeptic even a little bit further that perhaps there are, there's a whole other realm that we're not fully knowing of?
2: That is a very interesting question and it's one that I wrestle with regularly. I am a I am a member of New Zealand Skeptics Society. Okay. I have spoken at one of their conferences quite a while ago, but that was an experience. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I um you know I keep up with all of that. And being a skeptic, you know, skeptics have got rather a bad rap. Mm -hmm. I think Certainly in the kind of paranormal believers community, skeptics are kind of the enemy. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel that within the realm of paranormal investigation, if there's a group of you, it's very healthy to have people with different viewpoints.
1: Absolutely. Within
2: that group. And we don't sit around arguing about stuff. We just just experience things in, in our own way and we, Come at them. So within our group, there has been up to ten people: medical doctors, psychologists, um, you know, quite sceptical, scientific-minded people, um, and also people who have more of an openness to spiritual experience. And we have we've had that cross section within the group, which has been very healthy. I think that's excellent. Yeah, I think that's how it should be. Not just a bunch of believers trying to convince anybody that. Yeah. This or that phenomena exists.
1: You need skeptics to to push science forward. Really, right? They're the questioners. Skeptics
2: are scientists, really. I mean, mm-hmm. the the way of thinking thing thinking things through as a skeptic is is basically the same as scientific method. Now, personally, I have that push and pull within myself, and I do think I was thinking about this last night that it is possible to hold more than one viewpoint in a single person you know you don't have to be a single point on a spectrum of belief mm-hmm. or
3: mm-hmm.
2: unbelief so I come at things as a skeptic but last month we were filming a documentary in a nearby old movie theater that I've been trying to get into for
1: decades okay congratulations.
2: Well, I didn't do it. Um, I failed many times. The young guys who organized the documentary, they managed to get in. Thought they might. I pointed them at it and they did it. (laughs) And we went in there. So um, three of us from the group, uh, myself, Helen, who I would say is one of the group who are more open and perceptive,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and Ellie, who is also, um, I'd say, in that Realm, but also very balanced, and then there was a couple of people in the in the group who were there to experience the paranormal investigation, and there was a couple of other people filming it. So we're in the theatre, and you know, I'm very much in the mode with like I was trying to get on Helen's wavelength of kind of opening the channels to the cosmos and
3: being perceptive. and if there is something in the theatre that is in some way present.
2: If there's a way of communicating with it, we were trying to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for like a couple of hours that we did the filming, I was very much in that mode. Um, while being careful that we weren't getting led astray by just strange sounds in the buildings or nobody was winding us up or anything like that.
1: So you're open. You're questioning, but you're also and you're curious and you're open to the unknown. And I mean, really, as if you're a scientist, or if you think of science as a discipline from, you know, the beginning of time, that's what it is. You have to be open to the unknown in order to discover the unknown. We don't know what we don't know.
2: A lot of scientists are a bit dry, but, you know, the great advances in science have come from people with great imagination. Absolutely. And the ability to see things beyond where everybody else is thinking those are those are the people who have taken this forward now I don't claim to be a scientist I don't claim that anything we're doing in strange occurrences is very scientific
1: so when somebody calls you and says listen James I I've been experiencing these very strange happenings in my workplace or in my home what what are the services or what, what does, does Strange Occurrences offer to them?
2: There's kind of two types of investigations, if you like. One of them is once we initiate ourselves, where we just go to like an old hospital or a movie theater or something and look for ghosts, which is what they do on television. And that is very entertaining, right? It's, it's actually really good fun. and. There's no client as such. The person just says, you guys can come in here, don't break anything, don't fall through the floor or jump out the window, just be careful. (laughs) And um, with all the workplace safety stuff that's in place these days um, and with Wellington, with its earthquakes, a lot of buildings you're just not allowed to go into anymore or people won't let you loose Mm -hmm. because of liability. So we don't get to do that stuff much. Um, The... Other kind is when someone approaches you and says, "Look, you know, we're experiencing this. We're having this issue." Now, there you have a client.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: If it's an email contact, quite often it is from a place that I can't physically get to, so we just have this email conversation. But um, that's about as far as it can go. I might recommend them some course of action. But if it's a local thing, if they look. Would you like us to come out and have a chat and have a look at your house? And, you know, we do that. And when we do, it's usually me and Denise, and we might take one other group member with us, or two or three of us will go because we're going to someone's
3: house, you know. And the approach there is to de-escalate things. Right. Because, you know, a lot
2: of people that do this, they will go into the situation and they will escalate the situation rather than de-escalate it. So if someone says, look, I can't go into the bathroom, I'm just terrified every time I go in there. And someone will turn up and they'll come to the bathroom and say, oh, yes, well, you know, actually, um, there's a man who used to live here and he's in your bathroom and he won't leave.
3: And he's mm-hmm.
2: not a nice person and that's really why you don't want to go in there. We need to get rid of him. Um, or there is a portal to another dimension in your bathroom and you really don't want to be going in there. They haven't actually looked at the possibility that perhaps there is no portal or there is no present from right, the past. Yeah. There are other reasons why someone might be having that experience.
3: Now, you know, having
2: had these experiences, I kind of know that it's not a load of nonsense. You know, yeah. people yeah. have these experiences. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're not uncommon, actually. And when you get talking with a bunch of people, like half of the people at the table have had some uncanny experience. And it's not always something which is explainable. Um, So I know that people have these experiences. I've had them. My wife has had them. Other people in our team have had them. Other people I know
3: have them. They happen. Why they happen, I do not know. That's kind of why we're
1: here. That's why we're talking about this.
3: Yeah.
2: So we go and we listen and we have a look at the bathroom. And we have a look at the rest of the house. And sometimes we're able to find things that might have triggered that experience.
1: Okay. Like what kinds of things?
2: Okay. I'll give you an example. We went to a house near near where we live, not far. And The experience was, there were various experiences that the person had noticed in the house, various strange things. One of them was they had this, they're kind of a goth, right? So they had this skulls and things in the room. And one of these skulls had reportedly flown off the shelf and landed in the middle of the room. So I had a look at it and I had a look at the way the shelves were set up. And the weight of the skull, it was quite light. It was hollow and it was plastic. And we went around the other side of the wall, which was in the kitchen. And the refrigerator pushed right against the wall. Now, you're meant to have a gap. Yeah. When the motor in the refrigerator starts, there's a vibration. And if the thing is touching the wall, it's going to cause a vibration through the wall. And that might be enough to vibrate the skull off the shelf off on the, the side, shelf. which then hits the protruding shelf below it, bounces out into the room. And we we did this. We replicated it. I took the skull home. I pushed it. I pulled it. I filmed it. And, yes, it bounces. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't take much to move it. So, you know, for that particular instance, I would say, you know, we, we said, look, I think this is what's going on here. But, yeah. you know, there are other things in the house as well. and. Some of them we're unable to explain. Uh, But sometimes you can find a physical reason for a thing.
1: Which can be a great relief, probably, to Mm. some people. I mean, I think some people may be somewhere inside themselves hoping that perhaps it is a paranormal explanation behind what they're experiencing. But I think many would be relieved to discover that it's actually something that can be explained away.
2: In New Zealand, you know, there are a number of of groups, and some of them are more believers. The people who are the real, true believers who want the thing to be paranormal, they don't usually come to us, you know, because right. yeah. they probably get we pro- they probably get a sense from the website that we're not the people that are just going to affirm their beliefs.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, you are going to take a critical approach. Well,
2: we're going to be balanced, and we're not. We're not just there to affirm people's personal beliefs.
1: What do you do when you do encounter a situation where you really can't explain what is going on? Have you had those experiences? Yes.
2: Usually they don't happen during the investigation, but you know, one did. We were in an art school in Auckland, Okay. And I'd, I'd given a photography talk to photography students during the day. And then because the art school was in this ex-psychiatric hospital called Carrington Hospital, which is now closed down and it's been demolished, I believe. Mm. Um, we did this after-hours paranormal investigation involving a couple of the photography tutors, both actually quite well-known artists in New Zealand. So that was nice. Oh, wow. And about a dozen of the students. So that was really cool. And I got a friend from Auckland, Mark Wallbank, who runs probably the biggest group of paranormal investigators in New Zealand. He came along and we we split into two groups and we, we did this investigation in this building. So, you know, they used to do that shock treatment thing. And uh, allegedly that was used as a punishment, you know, in, in back in the day. So we're down in this, what used to be a, a photographic dark room in the basement of the building and you, it was like a room within a room within a room, so it was immediately quite claustrophobic. And we're in there, and we've got these EMF meters, like the ones TAP guys use, those analog ones.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of, them, one of them is a natural EM meter, which actually measures things like moving magnetic fields. Um, it's not sensitive to man-made electrical wiring so we've got these three things in the room and they're on shelves they're motionless and i'm explaining to the four or five people that are in there i'm just showing them how the natural em meter might react if i move near it so i walk over to it and i tap my foot on the floor not very hard and the meter starts to react and i've never seen this particular meter react like this before not only was it reacting the other two metres in the room were reacting very strongly, like the needle was going upscale and vibrating around. And this continued for 90 seconds. Wow. And then it stopped. And I have no idea what caused it. What could explain that? I, I can't explain it. In my imagination, if that room at some stage in the past had been the location for administering... Um, shock treatment Mm -hmm. I imagine that the apparatus that would do that might cause that kind of reaction on the meters yeah that's my paranormal kind of thinking
1: were all the students with you uh, a little creeped
0: out
2: I don't think they're as creeped out as I was because they weren't as familiar I've used these meters a lot right and you know, a couple of them react to, like, if a fridge motor turns on or something, they react. I know that. Right. The natural one doesn't ever react to anything much. It may be a lightning storm or if there's a shift in the Earth's magnetic field or something like that or a solar okay. flare. I don't know. It takes that kind of stuff to make it react, right? Okay. I've never seen it react before, so I don't know what it was, but that just remains in the unsolved basket,
3: mm-hmm. and the
2: building is now being demolished. What possibly sets us apart from some other paranormal groups is we have never claimed anything to be paranormal or haunted. We've say, this happened, you know, this thing occurred, we looked, we couldn't find any reason for it, we don't know what caused it, we don't know what it was, this is what happened. And that is as far as we've ever gone with anything because you cannot prove it. And there's no mechanism by which something that happened, say, 50 years ago, could reoccur invisibly in the present. We don't have a mechanism for understanding that yet.
0: So, James, my next question to you was going to be whether you've ever been truly afraid on a site of investigation. Nothing
2: has occurred during a paranormal investigation that has been that, that scary or very scary at all, but I will say when we first kind of started doing this stuff, like one of the first big investigations we did was in an old prison in Napier, and it was the first like big place we'd been into. Mm-hmm. And we, wandered, we, we stayed out all night, and you're wandering into these old cells, you know, and you can imagine there'd been hangings and things prison it was pretty brutal and you know all old prisons they're crowded with people who are in you know not really Mm -hmm. having a very good time at all and you you have to wonder if that emotional energy persists Mm -hmm. in in the space. So anyway you're in a little jail cell with a few people you don't even know that well.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: one of them one
3: of them will say it's cold in here, I feel something, there's a shadow in the corner, what is that? And
2: everyone looks around and they either see the shadow or they don't and you get the chills, right? That is quite scary and the main reason that people want to do ghost hunts. Right. You, you want to experience that because it's not really dangerous, it's just kind of entertaining. Mm-hmm. People like being scared, right? They go on roller coasters. They they do. They bungee jump off mountains. You know, people like (laughs) adrenaline. They're
0: searching for something.
2: (laughs) Yeah. They want to know they're alive and they want to know there's something out there that is mysterious.
0: So you've written a paranormal novel, Edwin J. Smith, Paranormal Investigator. Just curious, how has your work informed your writing? Oh, that was so much fun. I wrote that really fast. I've
2: been to two paranormal conventions in Australia. Okay. Around around Sydney, and I'd spoken at two of them. And, you know, we went back a third time and we stayed in the the Carrington Hotel in a town called Katoomba, which is outside west of Sydney. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Beautiful place, lovely old hotel from the 19th century, made up to Art Deco style. You know, fantastic. We stayed there. It was great. I wanted to base the plot of the novel so that it ended up in that location. And my plan was then to launch the novel at the next paranormal convention, which was at that hotel. Yes, it's based on my experience of paranormal investigation and of my experiences and knowledge of certain people within the community of paranormal investigators and people who are interested. And the characters have some basis in some of those people. Of course, there are amalgams. Right. And you know, you'll be well aware that historically, there's a lot of infighting.
0: Oh, I did not know that. Okay.
2: Between paranormal groups, investigation groups, and within paranormal investigation groups, there is a lot of infighting. There are feuds. There are nasty goings on. There's backstabbings. There's all kinds of stuff. And... I've been peripherally involved in that ever since I've entered that community. You know, it doesn't happen. I I deal with artists. I'm a musician. I deal with musicians. I've been doing that for decades. Most musicians are pretty genial. Most artists are pretty genial. (laughs) Of course, there are large egos and artistic temperaments, but generally things have knock on wood. I'm superstitious. Hey, knock on wood pretty smoothly. Within the group of paranormal investigators in New Zealand, I believe in Australia from what I heard from going to the conventions that half the people there wanted to kill each other, they just had to behave themselves. Um, And it's probably the same in the United States. I believe you Canadians are very, very polite. (laughs) But the Americans are definitely at each other. And of course the English are going to be in any other country where people do this. So there are these characters and there are egos and there are ambitious people who get their noses out of joint pretty, pretty easily. So I wanted to bring all of that into the novel. And I had a lot of fun writing these characters. And I just mm-hmm. reread. I wrote this a while ago and I just reread it a couple of weeks ago. And it is actually quite fun.
0: Well, I was just going to ask you regarding some of the Infighting is it based on disagreements and what constitutes evidence?
2: I think it's mostly based on jealousy. Oh. It's
0: quite
2: it's quite hard to get investigations right. I you, see. You need some. You need somebody, usually the leader of the group, who actually has the ability to talk to people, is a good communicator, make contact with people, and get permission to go to places. Right. Right. There are not that many people with that ability. And the thing with those people is they will drive a group forward and that group will become quite successful okay. because they get access to do a lot of stuff. I see. Now, other, other groups get kind of jealous because they start their group, but they're not able to get good investigations. And they see this other group doing all this stuff and they get jealous. But we just try and stay away from all that. You know, we're lucky there have been no other rival groups in Wellington, <laughs> so we haven't had much to contend with. There's a lot of jealousy and backstabbing in the field. There always has been, always will be, and I had a lot of fun with novel just I bet playing on that. Yeah, that, that's what kind of drove it. The main character is kind of a sceptic, and the, just that tension between science and belief. Right. You know, that tension is it's in me. It's, I think, in most people. And it's certainly in the main character of the book. And he gets pulled this way, pulled that way. And that 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 that's at the core of it as well.
0: Well, I want to pull away from people right now and, and and talk about geography location. Is there a location anywhere in the world that you would love to investigate?
2: Oh, look, I could rattle off a whole lot in the United States and Europe and United Kingdom and other countries, but, you know, Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Even Sir Edmund Hillary, when he went to Antarctica, and this is, he's now dead, but a very famous man who would not be known for sort of flights of fantasy, actually said that he had a strange experience in Antarctica where he Sense the presence of a previous explorer or something like that. I can't quote it to you. Okay. My, my sister-in-law, who is my wife's twin sister, when she, she wintered over down there, um, there's a little A-frame hut that they go out to if they want a bit of peace and quiet from the main base. And when she was there with one other person, she said they heard somebody come by on skis. Somebody, they had the sound of someone skiing. Past them. Now, nobody, they don't use skis in Antarctica these days. They might have in the early days of exploration, but nobody skis down there.
0: So that's unusual.
2: Distinct sound of skis going past them. So it's a very quiet place. I mean, I've not been to Antarctica, but there's no traffic noise. (laughs) It's really, really quiet. So your senses are on, like, there's no background noise like there is here. Your senses are looking for signals, and there aren't any. I can't imagine what that's like, but I would like to have that experience. So Antarctica, there are stories, you know, people have these experiences down there.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for chatting with us today, James. You've inspired Heather and myself to keep our eyes and minds open to the unexpected. If you'd like to learn more about James Gilbert, follow him on Facebook and find out more about his books. You can find them on Amazon. Thanks so much, James. Thank you very much.
1: I'm not sure I have the guts to do what James does, though I am absolutely fascinated with the paranormal. I wonder how many hauntings just can't be resolved and the people just move away, leaving the spirits to begin their shenanigans again with fresh blood.
0: I can imagine some ghosties and nasty spirits can be a little more stubborn than others. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Fred the Black Monk in West Yorkshire? He
1: was a black soul who was hanged for rape back in the time of Henry VIII. Yuck, sounds like a lovely guy. Oh yeah, doesn't he though? He's legendary. He tormented a family of four, the Pritchards, for years. They brought in police, paranormal investigators, all of whom witnessed the goings-on. Also known as the poltergeist of Pontefract, Fred still haunts the building. Apparently, he bothers people by draining their phone batteries, growling in cupboards under the stairs, gluing doors shut, and of course, the regular behavior of tearing apart rooms. Not too long ago,
0: there was even a photograph taken of a
1: ghostly arm holding a rosary thought to be
0: Fred. Ugh. All manner of things, including exorcisms, have been attempted to rid the property of Fred, but it looks like the current owners are capitalizing on his antics. Yep, that's right. There's tours now offered, but no exorcisms or
1: use of Ouija boards are permitted on site. Halloween field for Paris? Uh, not on your life walker. (laughs) Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at, at @harrisonwalker. We would love to hear from you.